my heart uh, for many reasons. The, the main reason is because uh, it's where I entered the vineyard. Um, having grown up in the Southern Baptist Church, you can imagine worship wasn't something I necessarily understood as far as contemporary music and that kind of thing. So we'll, we'll dig into what worship is and why we worship today. Um, let's pray. Lord Jesus, come in this place and uh, lead us through the service. God, I'm excited and a little nervous as we approach this topic of worship. As we come back to this real core value of the vineyard, this original value of the vineyard, where the vineyard started, kind of our primary focus. Lord God, I pray that you will help us, Jesus, to hear you and to listen to you and experience you in worship. And God, I pray that you'll fill us with your presence. And Lord God, we love you. We thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, Patrick. Patrick. Patrick, I hear you up here, bud. Can you keep it down? Thank you. Turn with me to John 4. John 4, 24. The first thing I want to say, guys, is number one, number one, we have got to be prepared to be in uncomfortable places. We have got to be prepared to go somewhere uncomfortable. In order to go on with God in this next era, we're going to have to be prepared to be a little uncomfortable. Does that make sense? We cannot stay where we are and go on with God. A great one used to, I can't remember who actually said it, so I don't want to misquote somebody, but it was once said, and I'm not sure who the great was that said it, they prayed, God, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. God, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Because oftentimes we won't move unless afflicted. There's something I said not too long ago uh, to Lori. I said, um, what was it I said about um, ticking people off? Either I tick you off or I inspire you. At least I got you moving. You know, something like that. What's that? What was it again? So, oh, there it is. Ticked at me or inspired by me. At least I got you moving. You know, true story. At least I got you moving. Huh? No, I wasn't. And inside of just our daily life in the church, you may find it uncomfortable as people around to see these things that are uncomfortable and let it not bother us. You know, we're big enough people to recognize the reality of things. For instance, I mean, Patrick's here. Sometimes he makes me uncomfortable. And sometimes I make him uncomfortable. But together we're better for being together, right? Right. And he can handle that from me. If you're uncomfortable by Patrick or me in this church, that's something to do with you, not us. Are you big enough to handle the uncomfortable? I am. I can handle the uncomfortable. Because community causes discomfort. And part of the community is, is actually exists and develops so that we rub up against each other and we find out all the junk in us that's not like Jesus. Is that not the case? Let me ask you this. When you rub up against somebody in the church and you find out you just don't like the way they do, fill in the blank. Have you ever thought to yourself, wow, that's really not a Christ-like attitude? Isn't that amazing? Did you know that God places people in our lives to give us discomfort so that we will learn to be more like Jesus? That person is making you like Jesus if you let them, if you embrace them. If you embrace the situation, does that make sense? Worship's the same way. When we approach worship, God wants us to be a little uncomfortable so that we'll become a lot more Christ-like. He's trying to show us all the little things, the, the smaller things. Some of them are bigger, we just can't see them or we think they're small. That he's developing in us and he's drawing out of us. And if we will stop and instead of feeling the discomfort and running, uh, and being whiny about it, if we'll embrace the discomfort, recognize what it is, look at it and go, wow, that is not comfortable. I feel discomfort at this. And then ask ourselves, why is it I feel this discomfort? What is it in me that's reacting to this? And pause for a moment to listen to God. He'll oftentimes show us. 
The reason why you're uncomfortable with those relationships. The problem you're uncomfortable with this is because you won't tell the truth. You have a self-image problem and you can't say the truth to someone without hurting them or being offensive. The reason why you have a problem with this is because you're worried about what people think about you. You get it? And fill in the blank. There's a ton of other reasons. In worship, God is calling us to the uncomfortable place. John 4, 24. Before this lady was taught about worship, this is the story of the woman at the well, right? And I'm not going to go into the whole story uh, because we know the story. I've done it over the year. You know, I did it last year at some point. And um, when I talked about it, I talked about worshiping in spirit and truth. Now, what I want to get to out of this 424 passage is God is teaching her a deep, deep truth about worship. This balance between spirit and truth. This balance between the word of God and the spirit of God. The experience of God and the written way God works. God has literally handed us his word. It's the infallible inspired word of God. And it is filled with truth about God. It's got his personality, his characteristics, the way he rolls, how he does things, you know. It's got it all in there so that when we interact with him through experience, we can align it by that word and say, well, this one fits and this one doesn't. And the ones that don't, that's not something I'm going to pursue. You get it? And if we're strong in the word, then we can balance out. He's teaching a lady at a well after he makes her uncomfortable. Right? What does he do? He says, you're doing all this stuff. Truth be known. Hope you're uncomfortable. And when made uncomfortable in dealing with issues, then she could worship. Right? After she saw who she was, she could be forgiven much like the sinful lady who washed Jesus' feet. Oftentimes we are not able to worship or show our love or gratitude to Jesus because we are unable to deal with our own sin or see it. Right? So that's where we start today. Is in this uncomfortable place. I want to make sure that we're all Okay with being uncomfortable. Because being uncomfortable is the starting point. Okay? Is that cool? What you're going to hear in some of this topic, it may sound a little bit uncomfortable. And it may not fit you right now. You may not like it. But I'll fill you in on it as we go. Worship is the act of freely giving love to God. And it forms and informs, it both forms and informs every part of the Christian life. So if you're a Christian, you're a worshiper. It's just built into who you are. Sage, can you hit that video? You can pause it and try again. We'll wait on it. Today's one of those days. One more thing about this, guys. In one week's time, we're changing our software. And I just got to say, praise Jesus. Because all these videos are going to be embedded at some point. (laughs) We don't have to do this. I won't be afraid to use video anymore. Amen to that. Is it in the the, uh, audio out? It was in the audio in, you know, Sage, when we were doing Everyone worships. Full screen it. We're almost there. Woo! Good enough. Thanks, Sage. Everyone worships. So whether you want to worship or not, you're worshiping. It's just a matter of what is our top priority that we are worshiping. We were made to worship one. And a lot of folks say... You know, I wonder what I exist for. What's the purpose of my life? I don't know what I'm supposed to do with the rest of my life. Fill in the blank. And if you really want to know what the rest of your life is supposed to be about and what you're made for, it's very simple. You're made for worship. That in that single place is the purpose. You're made for one. You're made to worship one. You're made for Jesus. You're made for him. Isn't that amazing? We as a body are one bride. Universal, Not just here in this building, but overall, universal. We were made for him. So both individually and corporately, we're made for him. That's our purpose. 
If you wondered what your purpose was, if you find your purpose in worshiping him, it'll be overwhelming and it'll be amazing in your life. So here's uh, some thoughts about worship. Over the years, many people who visited Vineyard Christian Fellowships remark on the depth and the richness of the worship they find there. And this hasn't come around by chance. This has been something that's been a well-thought-out philosophy that guides why and how we worship God as a people. And this is some of that communication of that philosophy. To understand how we worship God, it's helpful to learn about where the fellowship came back or came from, which goes back to 1977. At that, at that time, Carol Wimber, John Wimber's wife, was leading a small group of people in a home meeting that evolved into the Anaheim Vineyard. And she describes it this way. She said, We began worship with nothing but a sense of calling from the Lord to a deeper relationship with Him. Before we started meeting in a small home church setting in 1977, the Holy Spirit had been working in my heart, Carol's heart, creating a tremendous hunger for God. One day, as I was praying, the word worship appeared in my mind like a newspaper headline. I'd never thought much about that word before. As an evangelical Christian, I'd always assumed the entire Sunday morning gathering was worship. And in a sense, I was kind of correct. But in a different sense, there, was, there were particular elements of the service that were especially devoted to worship and not to teaching, announcements, musical presentations, and all the other activities that are part of a typical Sunday morning gathering. I had to admit that I wasn't sure which part of the service was supposed to be worship. After we started to meet in our home gathering, I noticed times during the meeting, usually when we sang, in which I experienced God deeply. We sang many songs, but mostly songs about worship or testimonies from one Christian to another. But occasionally we sang a song personally and intimately to Jesus with lyrics like, Jesus, I love you. And those types of songs both stirred and fed the hunger for God within me. About this time, I began asking our music leader why some songs seemed to spark something in us and others didn't. And as we talked about worship, we realized that often we would sing about worship, yet we never actually worshipped. Except when we accidentally stumbled onto intimate songs like, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice. Thus, we began to see a difference between songs about Jesus and songs to Jesus. Let's say that again. There's a difference between songs about Jesus and songs to Jesus. Have you ever noticed that? The songs about Jesus are great. And actually, let's just be honest. Largely in this current era, most of the music we sing, most of the music that has come out in this era is about Jesus or about our faith. There are very few that are to Jesus literally saying his name and intimately directed to him as a conversation. That's key to note. I'm thinking it even builds and it goes with a little bit of the dryness we feel in church right now. Is that lack of intimacy. Now during this time, Carol goes on, when we were stumbling around corporately in worship, many of us were also worshiping at home alone. How novel. What an amazing idea. Worshiping at home alone. And she goes on and says, during these solitary times, we were not necessarily singing, but we were bowing down and kneeling and lifting hands and praying spontaneously in the spirit, sometimes with spoken prayers and sometimes with non-verbalized prayers and even prayers without words at all. We noticed that as our individual worship life deepened, when we came together, there was a greater hunger toward God. So as they worshiped at home, hunger deepened toward God when they got together. So we learned that what happens when we are alone with the Lord determines how intimate and deep the worship will be when we come together. Are you hearing me? We must have worship lives away from this building and away from small groups. Alone, right? And then when we come together, we're, it's, a, it's an overflow. We're a little, getting a little excited. Oh, I get to be with other people. It gets better from here, right? Our expectation changes, You're not coming to this service thinking, feed me, feed me, feed me. You're thinking, overflow, overflow, overflow. Right? Because you've been feeding on the meat and the presence of his spirit all week long. She goes on. About that time, we realized our worship blessed God. That it was for God alone and not just a vehicle of preparation for the pastor's sermon. Do you notice how I cut us off with one song? Those who were here during the worship. How'd that feel? 
Because we're so used to using it to build up to a preaching, we've not realized that it's not meant for that. Isn't that amazing? The original church, when they came to temple, it wasn't to hear preaching. Does that shock you? What was it for? To worship God. Now, we as a people are that temple. And when we come together, what should our reason for getting together be? To worship. We just repurposed the church, didn't we? We're here to worship Him. We're here to bring Him glory and honor and praise and lift Him high and raise this roof in His name. Does that make sense? Preaching came along as a part of small groups that happened in homes after they came to worship and sacrifice and give to the Lord at the temple. So then, this was an exciting revelation, she goes on to say. After learning about the central place of worship in our meetings, there were many instances in, when, in which all we did was worship God for an hour or two. And at this time, we also discovered that singing was not the only way to worship God. How about that? Because the word worship literally means to bow down. It is important that our bodies are involved in what our spirits are saying. In scripture, this is accomplished through bowing heads or lifting hands or kneeling or even lying prostrate before the Lord. A result of our worshiping and blessing God is being blessed by him. It's a result. We don't worship God in order to be blessed, she says. But we are blessed as we worship him. So it's not the purpose of our hearts. The purpose of our hearts is to worship him. And the result of our worshiping him is that we are blessed. Have you ever walked away from church and thought, man, I wish I got more out of it. I wish I was more blessed. Bring more to it. Are you getting me? You bring more to him. You give him the place he's supposed to have. And you say, God, you're lifted up. This is my worship to you. You are all. I am small. You walk away going, wow, how great was he? You get it? Wow. We don't worship God in order to get blessed, she says, but we are blessed as we worship him. He visits his people with manifestations of the Holy Spirit. They're not the purpose. They're a side effect. You've heard me say this forever, and I just found this little chunk from Carol recently, so this is pretty cool. Thus, worship has a twofold aspect. It's communication with God through the basic means of singing and praying and communication from God through teaching and preaching, the word, prophecy, and exhortation. So it's twofold. We lift him up and exalt him, and as a result are drawn into his presence where he speaks to us. Now, we're talking about all of the vineyard core values through the lens of relationship, right? This is the crux of the relationship. When we come in to lift God up and bless him and worship him, exalting him through our songs and our our activity with our body and our communication of our heart and our praying. He then speaks to us through the teaching and the prophetic. He speaks to us through his um, manifestation and his presence comes and speaks to us. There's a conversation that takes place. Too many of our churches have one-sided conversations. Too many Sundays we've had one-sided conversations. Are you hearing me? And another thing to think about is it's unfair to say to God, speak to me if we're not willing to sing to him or lie prostrate to him or bow down to him. That's not cool. Listen, God is not your pet. He doesn't fetch. He does not roll over. And he'll never play dead. You hear me? It's time we cut that out. Church, it's time that we start treating God with the reverence and respect and the holiness he deserves. We will worship him first. Then, if he wants to come, awesome. If he decides not to, awesome. If he speaks, awesome. If he's quiet, awesome. Because he's God. The definition of worship. Probably the most significant lesson 
that Carol and the early Vineyard Fellowship learned was that worship is the act of freely giving love to God. In Psalm 18.1, we read, I love you, O Lord, my strength. Which, of course, is one of the cool vineyard songs. Love you, O Lord, my strength. You know that song? Fortress my stronghold forever, my rock of salvation, my only foundation. Isn't that awesome? I love you, O Lord, my strength. Worship is also an expression of awe, submission, and respect toward God. That's in Psalm 95, 1 through 2, and 96, 1 through 3. You could check that out later if you'd like. Our heart's desire should be to worship God. We've been designed by God for this purpose. If we don't worship God, we will worship something or someone else. It's just our natural inclination as human beings being designed for worship. We will worship something because we're drawn to worship. Does that make sense? Why do you think Satan thought it was so important to own worship? Because the creation was created for it. He could own the whole deal if he just got that one thing. Well, I've already got the lead of the choirs. I'm just going to take the direction of the worship too, he thought. And it got him kicked out of heaven. So our heart's desire should be to worship God. We've been designed by God for this purpose. But how should we worship God? There are various ways described in the Old and New Testaments. The first one I want to talk about is confession. It's the acknowledgement of sin and guilt to a holy and righteous God. Confession is a part of worship. Now, Lisa, I hope you don't mind me putting you out there. But Lisa and I have talked about this over the years. But in the Protestant church, largely, we, we don't like confession. And we don't get it real well. The Catholic church, they move toward confession naturally. Now, in the balance somewhere, there should be a confession place where we can confess our sins one to another so that we might be healed like James talks about and confess our sins to God. There has to be a balance. But I don't want to get rid of either one. I want both. It is a beginning point for worship even. When we start to recognize our sin and we confess it to each other, we say, man, keep me accountable. This is what's going on in me. Like we talked about in the last week, that two by two kind of attitude. I need you to keep me on track. And that confession is the first point because you recognize the sin, you speak it out loud, and God is able to then deal with it. Someone else is able to walk with you in it. So that could be either to a human being or to the Lord himself. I'd say both. Try both. They rock. Second thing is thanksgiving. It's giving thanks to God for what he's done. And especially for his works of creation and salvation. That he had, he's created us and saved us. Those are the biggest things to be thankful for. If he just did those two things, they're worth our worship, right? If he just did one, it's still worth our worship. But he did both. And then adoration, which is praising God simply for who he is, Lord of the universe. Now, as Carol talked about earlier, I mentioned that Worship involves not only our thought and our intellect, but also our body. There needs to be a body response. Seen through the Bible are such forms of prayer and praise as singing, playing musical instruments, dancing, kneeling, bowing down, lifting hands, using the tambourine, and it goes on and on, clapping, shouting. It goes on and on and on and on. These are all acceptable. Therefore, in church... As it starts to get a little uncomfortable, meaning someone starts to actually act out on one of these things, what are we supposed to do? Crazy freaking nature. No, 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 we're not supposed to do that. (laughs) We know what we are inclined to do. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to look at them and say, wow, that bothers me. Why does it bother me? Why am I not open to worship? And truthfully, guys... You know, growing up in the, in the Baptist church, I've got, I've got probably more experience in judgmentalness than anybody in here. I do. I grew up after going through Bible drills and memorizing scripture. There's a reason why I can quote scripture left and right. It's because I was born. Well, no, I wasn't born into it. I was, I, I was reared in the Southern Baptist church, by gosh. And if I didn't, my mama would have had my hide, Right? That's just the way it works. Man, it's in here. Even if I didn't want it to be in here, it's in here. 
And so what happens is, is I got it all in here. And then I've watched the demonstration of what worship I thought should be over the years. And someone starts raising their hands. I'm like, that's a freak. What are you doing, man? Or I see someone bow down. The only appropriate time to bow down is whenever they give that altar call. At least that's what I thought. Or what about these people that cried? Cried was a, crying was a sign of weakness. We'd attack you after the service. <laughs> Get the weak, you know. Could have them for lunch. <laughs> nah, not really, but kind of. It really was, man. It was, you know, all of these expressions of emotion or outcroppings of, of the spirit. If they didn't fit a certain paradigm, it was unacceptable. So when I first came into contact with the Vineyard Church, it was my, my Baptist pastor at the time said, hey, I got this music you're going to love. Let me play it for you. He played it. And it was like one of those songs like, I love you, oh Lord, my strength. And he, he played it. And I was like, oh my goodness. I'm sitting here listening to it offended. And this person's like, in your arms of love, in your arms of love, holding me still, holding me near, in your arms of love. And I was like, gag a maggot. What is that? I didn't hear one thee or thou in that song. We know that's not God. Because God, he speaks in 1611 King James English, right? No, not right. Not true. And so my offenses got more and more and more until I was going to these revival services with him. I'd been studying revivals. I'd read Henry Blackaby's stuff. Blackaby told me to read about the greats. In the stories of greats, I saw where weird things happened through the first and second great awakenings. I thought, well, that stuff can't happen. And I saw it in the Old Testament. Then I started going to meetings where it did happen. Now, we're not talking about just charismatic meetings, which I'd seen before, and I was able to relegate them to the sideline. I'm like, weirdos, you know? <laughs> little did I know. Little did I know. God was dragging me in, you know? You know, so those guys with the tambourines and the clap and the shout and the dance, and I was able to say, well, that's just interesting. <laughs> but then I'm at meetings with Presbyterians and Methodists and Baptists and some Charismatics and Pentecostals, and people are experiencing God in ways that did not seem very acceptable to me. And as I'm sitting there, I would listen, even during the preaching, and someone would have an experience and maybe yell out, Woo! You know, or they'd just shout, God! I looked at my pastor. That's not God. So here I am judging. I'll never forget the experience. And there was a lady sitting in front of us. And about that time, the pastor said something that was really freeing. I can't remember what it was, but it was one of those things where it was really cutting. And he said it. And you could tell the people in the service were so affected. They're being brought to tears or being set free. And, you know, people have been through so many abuses over this last 50 years in America. There are a lot of broken people in our services. So this lady sitting there, and um, there's people around us that are crying after this pastor said whatever he said, and she starts to laugh. <laughs> and I was like, she's laughing. He says, I know. We sat there. <laughs> she laughed. She's getting loud. She's laughing, man. I know. And she continued. And then she got really loud. I was like, that's not God, man. He stayed quiet. She got louder. That is not God, man. He stayed quiet. Brother, that, that can't be God. He looks at me and goes, I don't know. <laughs> you know? I thought then, my pastor's a charismatic. <laughs> Weirdo. They got him too. They won't get me. Right? I told you a story about blood and fire where the lady handed me the banner and said, Here. And I'm like, This is me for I don't do that. Remember? And then if you hadn't heard it, just real quick, the thing goes is, and I won't give you the long version, short version. In the middle of the song about fire, I unroll the banner because my spirit's hurt and I'm aching and I'm just burning inside and I'm going, Oh, this is weird. I don't do that. I don't dance. I don't run. I don't shout. And banners, weird, right? 
<laughs> I was just, you know. And these other people, they got the baiters, they're doing this stuff. And I'm going, whatever, you know. These folks don't understand a Baptist. So I unroll it as I'm sitting there aching. And what is the darn thing? It's a flame. I mean, it's literally cut out flame. And it's sparkly. And I was like, ah! And so I jumped over the row of chairs. I'll never forget this. And I remember hitting the front row. And I went, (laughs) And that's when the propriety ended in me. Everything that was proper was gone. That was actually the first time my wife ever saw me, too. <laughs> she didn't know. Years later, when I actually met her, because she lived in Georgia, and I lived in North Carolina, strange thing, right? We're even in pictures together before we ever met, like a year before. But anyways, when we met, I was like, I was at the Wimber Conference. I was at the Wimber Conference, she said. And I said, wait a minute, you're, you're at the Wimber Conference? She was, yeah. I said, oh. <laughs> Do you remember the guy with the... Firefly that went crazy. She goes, Oh, that was you. I don't usually do that. I don't usually do that. But it was worship. And it was what God was doing at the moment, and I'm less judgmental now. Right? You don't see me doing it every weekend here. I may start. Why you laugh? <laughs> I'll do it in the back. <laughs> we need a long building. We don't need a wide building. We need a long building. And I'll be in the very back with a little curtain. <laughs> and we'll call it the holy place. No one comes in. Put up back there. <laughs> Phases in the heart. We need to talk about this. I got to get out of this part. But anyways... Not only is it helpful to understand why and how we worship God, it's also helpful to understand what happens when we worship God. Now, in the vineyard, we see five basic phases of worship. This is original vineyard teaching, guys. So we're, we're going to stick out here and then, or stick around this. These are the phases through which leaders attempt to lead the congregation. Now, understanding these phases is helpful in our experience of God. So keep in mind is that we, as we pass through these phases, we're headed towards one goal. The one goal of worship in our church is this. What do you think our one goal is? You might have an idea. There is a right or wrong. I won't make you feel dumb, but I want to see if anybody can, can pick this one out. What is our one goal in worship? To make God happy. Close. Know, to, to, to bless him. To, yeah. I mean. And there's an interaction that takes place even... We are doing this conversation of blessing him and him blessing us. And there's something underlying that takes place that God really wants from us that is the real crux of worship. And it's intimacy with him. It's intimacy with him. Did you know that? That there's an intimate thing that happens between the worshiper and the worshiped. It's the reason why it's so yucky whenever people worship something else than God. When they're created for that one space to be his alone. There's something intimate that happens between a worshiper and the worshiped. So if you're worshiping stuff and you don't know it, there's an emptiness and an ache. When your focus is right and you're worshiping him alone, there's intimacy with it. I define intimacy as belonging to or revealing one's deepest nature to another. And in this case, it's God. And it's marked by close association, presence, and contact. I mean, that's just in a natural relationship. That's what it is, and that's what it is with God as well. I mean, we're all adults here, right? We can handle this. This would be real. So we're going to describe these phases as they apply to corporate worship, but they may just as easily be applied to our private practice of worship alone. The first phase is called the call to worship. And it's a message directed toward the people. It's an invitation to worship. And it can be accompanied through a song like, Come, let us worship and bow down. Or it may be jubilant, such as the song, Don't you know it's time to praise the Lord. It's a pulling in, a drawing in, just like ancient Israel did. The underlying thought of the call of worship is, Let's do it. Let's worship now together. Song selection for the call of worship is important. Because it sets the tone for the gathering and directs people toward God. Today I did overflow. 
because I wanted to direct you somewhere on purpose. I was purposeful in my song selection. As a matter of fact, when this, is, when this is recorded and done, I'm recording it right here. I'm making our worship leaders listen to it and giving them the notes because this is so important. There's a dynamic that takes place when we call to worship. It sets a tone for the gathering. It directs people to God. And it's the first night of a conference whenever people may be unfamiliar with songs um, that we have to call someone in in a conference setting. Or if you're in a, um, a weekend getaway it's that night where you're saying, hey, let's, let's learn this or let's draw together for this. Think about the last night of a conference or a getaway. What's happening? You're a, very, you're a very connected place. You're all together. Momentum has been building all that week and now you're ready to get into intimacy quick. So if this is a Sunday morning worship time, we have to ask ourselves, has the church been doing the works of God all week? And that doesn't mean just the worship of God, but the acts of God, the life of God, the stuff of God. Have we been doing the stuff of God all week? Have we prepared? Or has the church been in the doldrums? Have we been off to the side? If the church has been doing well, Sunday worship rides on the crest of a wave. And it's like the climax. And all these thoughts are reflected in the call to worship. The ideal is that each member of the congregation be conscious of these concerns and pray that the appropriate tone be set in the call to worship. So if the church is on the down low because they've been in sin, you've got to start off with a song that says, Come prepare our hearts, God, and give us clean hands and pure hearts, Lord. And if people are on the crest of a way because God's been moving, they're doing the stuff of God all week, you come in and you're like, let's blow the top off this building songs, right? Second phase is engagement which is the electrifying dynamic of connection to God and each other, expressions of love and adoration and praise and jubilation and intercession and petition all happen here. It's the dynamics of prayer that are unlocked with worship, and they come forth from somebody's heart. Worship, then that singing becomes like prayer. It becomes prayer. Have you ever worshiped, and then you find yourself, you're praying, you're talking to him on purpose, and he's there with you? That's engagement. It's where you're engaged with him. And in the engagement phase, we praise God for who he is through music as well as prayer. The music even kind of crosses over and becomes prayer. The scriptures we use will be in a prayerful tact or manner. And an individual may have moments like these in his or her private worship at home. But when the church comes together, the manifest presence of God is magnified and multiplied during these times. You want the magnified and multiplied presence of God. Enter in the call of worship. Dig into the conversation of engagement. Are you getting me? This stuff, you guys, these are principles that are truth. Then there's expressing God's love. As we move further in the engagement phase, we move more and more into loving and intimate language. Being in God's presence excites our heart and minds, and we want to praise Him for the deeds He's done, for how He's moved in history, for His character and attributes. And jubilation is at the heart, and it swells up within us in which we want to exalt Him. The heart of worship is to be united with our creator and the church universal and historic. Worship is going on all the time in heaven. And when we worship, we're joining with what's already going on and happening around us. Heaven's within arm's distance, right? Worship is happening right now. When we get to this point, we're joined with it. And then we're in harmony with it. This is a powerful corporate dynamic. It's the communion of the saints. It's where one accord happens. This intimacy causes us to even go into meditation. It, as we are singing, we find ourselves going into a deeper place in our relationship with the Lord. And sometimes we can recall vows that we've made to God. Oh, I made this vow to you, God, in the middle of our worship. And God may call to our mind disharmony or failures in our lives. And thus, confession starts to come as sin is involved. And then tears may flow as we see our disharmony, but his harmony, and our limitations, but his unlimited possibilities. And this phase is where we are awakened into his presence, and it's called expression. Expression. In expression, there's physical and emotional results in our worship. It It can be dance, it can be a body movement or emotion toward God. And it's an appropriate response to God if the church is on that crest. Now, let me say this. Have you ever been in a service where the expression is going on and it feels inappropriate? Yeah. Discernment is kicking up inside you. We can never pretend that we're somewhere we're not as a church. Now, this is where it takes a lot of 
learning. We're going to have to review this teaching, I can tell. But listen to this. We must recognize when we're not at that phase. And whenever the expression is wrong at the wrong phase, we must correct it. Does that make sense? It's not being mean. It's not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It's not stopping God's move. It's saying, yo, you're weird. And they really are. They're really in a weird place. It's not that they're ahead of us. They're just not in harmony. And actually, it could be that some people, listen to me, some people like to skip to expression so they don't have to deal with confession. Oh, my. Now, that's a deep truth. Some folks love to skip to expression because in their immaturity, they cannot stand to deal with confession. There are things they've locked away in that heart and it just can't be touched. Does that make sense? So we feel the disharmony. As the body, we stop and go, well, you're out of, you're out of harmony. No. When we, listen to this, when we're there together, there's not one person in this place that's going to go, wow, that dude's weird for hopping around and bouncing. When we're at the right place in expression together, every person's going to go, that's exactly what I'm feeling. We may not do it, but we may do something else. To do that out of order is, I'm going to be real with you, you ready? Don't get mad. Charismatic manipulation. Pentecostal manipulation. It's just as bad as my Baptist manipulation of saying, you can't do that here at all. It's equal. To force expression outside of the right phase with God is not right. Now here's what I want to say. I want to see us get here. Does that make sense? This is not me saying I don't want to get here. This is me saying I want to see us get here. I just want us to get there right. Right? And together. So that the whole place is bouncing. In Kenya, we get to this phase easy. I walk up, they're already in expression. They've been in expression for two hours before I ever walk on that joint. I find myself in the presence of God going, oh dear God, forgive me. Made me holy. I'm confessing. Oh God, thank you for your heavens and your creation. I'm getting that face over and I'm like, all right, give me a second. Ooh. And it rushes over. I'm like, I'm bouncing with you, you know. And I'm quick to get through phases. So if y'all want to go quicker, I can go with you. Let's just not pretend and skip one. Okay? Expression. So then expression moves to a zenith. And at that climactic point, it's, it, let's just be real, guys. Let's just be real. It's like that physical act of intimacy. And, and Solomon uses the same conversation in the Song of Songs. We have expressed what is in our hearts and our minds and our bodies. And now it's time to wait for God to respond. We stop talking and we wait for him to speak. We're anxious for his words, for him to move. And then we call this the fourth phase, visitation. The almighty God comes and visits his people. This visitation is a byproduct of worship. We don't worship in order to gain his presence. We don't worship in order to gain his presence. He is worthy to be worshipped whether or not he visits us. But when we worship here, oftentimes this is the part where he enters. Let's get here. So God's presence dwells in the praises of his people. He comes and inhabits a place where two or more are gathered in his name. And God dwells in these praises. So we should always come to worship prepared for an audience with the king. And we should expect the Spirit of God to work among us every time we come together. He moves in different ways, and sometimes it's for salvation, sometimes for deliverances, sometimes for sanctification or healings. And listen to me, guys. When we are in worship like this, this part is easy. Healings, signs, deliverance, no big deal. Oftentimes it will happen during the music, during the worship, or during the phase of the service. And people are like, I'm already healed. No one even touches on That's cool. God also visits us through his prophetic gifts. This is the part where the prophetic really stirs up. Do you hear me? There's a buildup to where the body is at that place and they can receive. Listen, in intimacy, you cannot jump into an intimate act with your spouse. That's real. Don't expect to do it with the church or God. Relationships are relationships. Guys, I'm being as real as I can. If I run you off, I'm going to run you off here. Right? This is the part. Because this is real. This is real. There has to be this 
relationship, this conversation. There has to be the buildup of that bank account with God where we have invested in that relationship with him through our acts of blessing. And his spirit is wooed into the place. Listen, Jesus, you can speak against him and get away with it. God the Father, you can speak against him and get away with it. But if you speak against the Holy Spirit of God, it's unforgivable. What does that tell me about the personality of the Holy Spirit of God? He's a little more intimate and fragile, right? Get that. You can't just walk right up and go, yo, Holy Spirit, touch me now. What? Are you kidding me? God gave us physical relationship with each other so we would learn better than that. I mean, God himself is like, you idiot. God. You know, you know, I really do want to come near you. But if I touch you now, I'm going to burn your hair off. <laughs> you know? I wonder if God ever just wants to do that. We haven't confessed anything. We're not, spirit's not right. We're not in unity. Harmony's not there. We're like, touch us now, God. And God's like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just a little pile of rubble there, dust. That's just not how it works. Thank God it doesn't work that way. If he came in all his greatness in here and showed you his face, you'd be dust. Let's get intimate with them. It takes time. It takes relationship. It's a concerted effort. Guys, listen to me. How many of you guys are married in here? Okay. How many of you guys have had a boyfriend or girlfriend at some point? Okay. All right. Like, tell me this. So you met the girl and you're like, we're getting married. Right, guys? First date. We're getting married. You don't know me. I don't know you. First conversation we're having. Let's get married. Is that how it works? No, it takes at least two. Just kidding. <laughs> at least it did for me and Lore. The true story is, is that the truth is, is that it takes a getting to know the people and it takes a building. It's an effort. It takes time. There's an investment. There's a sacrifice. There's a cost related. How do we think God works? It's the same thing. There's a cost investment. So five, the fifth phase of worship past that beginning of his visitation is the fifth phase of worship is a giving of substance. The church knows so little about giving, yet the Bible exhorts us to give to God. And the truth is, is that we've, honest to goodness, missed out on some of the best part of um, what I'm talking about here because we think giving should be up front in the service. And so we give because that's what we're supposed to do. And actually, giving is supposed to come out of our experience with Him. It's supposed to be an overflow. Giving is a flow out of His flowing in. So the fifth phase of worship is the giving of substance. The church knows so little. It says, and, and really it's pathetic to see people preparing for ministry who don't know how to give. It's like an athlete entering a race, yet he doesn't know how to run. If someone says, hey, I'm going to do a great ministry to God, and you're not a giver of resources, money, or who you are, it's, it's just dumb. You're going to be a minister as a taker? If we've not learned to give money, we haven't learned anything. Ministry is a life of giving. If we haven't learned to give of ourselves, our time, our relationships, our love, who we are, we're not anything. We give our whole life. God should have ownership of everything. Whatever we give God control of, he can multiply and bless. Not so we can amass goods, but so we can be more involved in his enterprise. Whatever I need to give, God inevitably first calls me to give it when I don't have any of it. So whether it's money, love, hospitality, or information, oftentimes God wants to give through us even in our little or our none. Remember the lady who gave the two mites? Jesus said she gave more than everybody else. Out of her, nothing. We're the first partakers of this fruit. But we're not to eat the seed. We're to sow it and give it away. The underlying premise is that whatever we are is multiplied for good or bad. And whatever we have on our tree is what we're going to get in our orchard. So as we experience these phases of worship, we experience intimacy with God and the highest and most fulfilling calling men and women may know. Now, this is the end of the service, but I've got to tell you something very interesting about this. It's hard for me to preach this way because I'm just not used to doing it. But this was first preached by John Wimber and was recorded in Australia. 
and the journals. I didn't write this one. I put my little funny stuff in there, but that's his. This is the heartbeat of the vineyard. True story. I think the vineyard's even forgotten it, to be honest, where we came from. Was small groups of worship, pockets of, of communities that just got around for intimacy. This is the core of who we are here. This is the core of our relationships here. We can't go anywhere else in the tapestry until we are here. Does that make sense? You understand? And this is really deep stuff, isn't it? This is not comfortable. You know, when you talk about getting to that point of expression and that culmination of visitation, it's scary stuff. But if we will go here, church will be more than what you're looking for. And you'll have more than overflowing. And if you're finding yourself emptied out in resources or life, or you're finding yourself emptied out of whatever, I'm challenging you to walk away from here and go home and find a life of worship. Walk through these phases. Live this. And then watch God give you overflow. If there's something being held up, if you're being held up and the flow of the river is not coming down because what we're after is the flow of the river of God into our lives that makes us into trees of righteousness and oaks that are growing along its bank. They're strong and can't be moved. And this flow of the river, if you're finding it's held up and you're shriveling up and you're not bearing any kind of fruit like acorns or whatever, it tells me there's a log jam somewhere. It's probably just one log. But whatever the log jam is, we need to go there And after we have spent time in our call to worship phase and we have worshiped him, we need to confess. Here's the jam, Lord. I want you more. And then press on through until we fully expressed our love to him the way he deserves. Not because he'll visit, but because we love him. And then as he comes and he visits and that culmination happens, we let him fill us up and let the fullness come. And then from overflow, we live. We minister. We give. We're the tapestry. We live to overflow. Amen? So what we're going to do right now 